The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Duke back with Jessica Burbank for another edition of You Know It, You Love It, Rising Fridays. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Amber. The moment everyone's been waiting for, Rising Friday. All right, what's up first for us today? Well, Amber, yesterday, Maine Secretary of State removed former President Trump from the state's 2024 presidential primary ballot. Shenna Bellows, a Democrat appointed by Maine lawmakers, explained her decision in a new clip. Let's watch. I'm mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a candidate of ballot access under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but no presidential candidate has ever engaged in an insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. My job was to evaluate the facts presented at the hearing, the evidence that was produced, and the record created in that proceeding, and to evaluate that and make a ruling which is what I did. Now, the weight of the evidence made clear that Mr. Trump was aware of the tinder laid by his multi-month efforts to delegitimize the 2020 election results. And he then chose to light a match. A spokesperson for the former president said last night, we are witnessing in real time the attempted theft of an election and the disenfranchisement of the American voter. We know the Constitution and the American people are on our side. Trump has already been banned from Colorado's 2024 ballot after the state's Supreme Court ruled him ineligible to run based on the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. Now, in the past weeks, courts for Michigan and Minnesota have rejected the Denver court's ruling and decided to keep Trump on their ballots. Meanwhile, Colorado Republicans have already formally lobbied the U.S. Supreme Court to strike down the lower court's ruling. No word yet on whether the court will take up that case. We do know, Jessica, that the deadline for Colorado to print its primary ballots is in the first week of January. So if the Supreme Court does not rule by then, it looks like Trump will appear on the ballot. The secretary of states of both Colorado and Maine, despite their decision, have also stayed their rulings pending a Supreme Court decision. Um, so right now, it's kind of business as usual. But I think it seems pretty obvious that the conservative majority Supreme Court is going to rule against these lower court rulings. This clause in the 14th Amendment, just for context for the viewers, was intended to prevent high-ranking Confederate uh, generals, officials, soldiers from potentially holding office after the Civil War. Um, it's actually under dispute whether or not it even applies to the office of president. and. Donald Trump has never been charged or convicted of uh, fomenting an insurrection. He was also acquitted by the Senate. So to me, this seems like a clear overreach of these courts' judicial authority. Yeah, I, I really think that when you have split rulings from the state Supreme Courts, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to need to weigh in. Them declining on Friday to weigh in on the Colorado ruling, I think, was, was very specific to the Colorado ruling. Now that we have you know, a conflicting case in Michigan and we now have another case that conflicts with the Michigan ruling here in Maine, 
I really do think the Supreme Court is going to need to weigh in. Now, of course, the Secretary of State of Colorado, if the Supreme Court says, you know what, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 doesn't actually apply here as you ruled, then I, I can imagine a world where they make some adjustments to how they do their primary this time around. I think it, it would be ridiculous to have the state Supreme Court get in the way of a candidate who should be on the ballot from being on the ballot just because, you know, the Supreme Court decision to overturn theirs was pending. So I, I really think that if, if Democrats are worried about Donald Trump doing what he did after the 2020 election again, if he wins this time around and then somehow tries to run again or what have you, or they're just worried he's going to try and do an insurrection again towards his, his later days in office if he wins again. I think they need to make contingency plans for if a president does that. They need to make the electoral process stronger. I think just kicking Trump off of the ballot isn't going to stop any other president if they wanted to overturn the outcome of a presidential election or any election for public office. It's really not going to stop them in the future from doing that. So that's what they need to be focused on. If they're worried about what happened on January 6th, they really need to pass legislation specific to what happened that day. Well, and from a strategic standpoint, I mean, you're kind of alluding to this, but the Democrats are only playing into Trump's hand and legitimizing his claims that they're trying to steal the election again by trying to remove him from the ballots in these various states. Why not let the voters decide on who they want to vote for? Um, removing him from the ballot based on something that he hasn't been charged with, hasn't been convicted of, hasn't even been convicted of in the Senate during that impeachment process, um, I think is frankly ridiculous and insulting to voters who are able to evaluate whether or not they believe Trump was responsible for fomenting an insurrection or whether the January 6th riot was more of an unfortunate example of uh, politics turning to violence, which you've seen with multiple, um, unfortunately, uh, different protests in the past few years. I also think there's a question as to whether or not these secretaries of state have that authority to um, unilaterally remove someone from the ballot based on the 14th Amendment. Because typically, the Secretary of State is sort of the end-all, be-all in terms of how states run their election processes. They determine the eligibility requirements for getting on the ballot, meaning how many signatures you have to collect um, and whatever fees you have to pay, whatever forms you have to fill out, things like that. But then to go beyond that and start ruling on aspects of the Constitution, to me, seems like um, stepping outside of the bounds of the authority that they are given by their states. Right. Yeah. The Supreme Courts of the states uh, saying the, the 14th Amendment applies here is, is asking for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in. The initial case in Colorado, you know, it was a 4-3 decision. The three dissenting justice judges rather actually made their decision based on state law. They said that that this would go against this, the state law of Colorado. There's no laws here which would have made it extremely difficult for the Supreme Court to then take that case and judge based on the facts of the case and what's been written uh, that they didn't apply the law properly or what have you. So I think now that we have this, this case in Michigan and this case in Maine, we can definitely expect the Supreme Court to weigh in. And how they'll decide, I think, is really interesting. I think what you pointed out that Donald Trump hasn't actually been convicted of inciting an insurrection is going to be the main thing that they're looking at. Can you bar someone from holding public office if the Constitution has written, bars someone who, who participated in an insurrection? 
And Trump has never been found guilty of that. So I think there was a, a major sign of weakness from Merrick Garland initially when Biden went into office. If the Democrats believed, as they have been saying, that Trump incited an insurrection, they should have prosecuted him for it. And, and the fact that they didn't shows a huge sign of weakness and I think might be the very reason we don't see these cases hold up in the Supreme Court. So if you're mad about what's going on right now and you're mad that the U.S. Supreme Court can overturn these cases and you're a Democrat, you should be more angry with Merrick Garland than any Republican lawyer of Donald Trump's. Sure, or Jack Smith, the special prosecutor who's bringing charges in that January 6th case, as well as the Georgia election interference case, and has not brought any charge related to insurrection. It's things like obstruction of justice, obstruction of an official proceeding. And so if he is supposed to be the, the guy who's going to get Trump or bring justice from a, a Democrat perspective, then that's who they should be angry with. Um, and I think it's also kind, kind of ironic that but the Biden administration and a huge swath of the Democratic Party has repeatedly been claiming that Trump is going to destroy democracy and he's going to rule as an authoritarian as they encourage these secretaries of state and these state uh, courts to go ahead and unilaterally remove someone from the ballot and take that choice away from voters. We're out of time on this segment, but we'll be, excuse me, we will be back with more Rising Next. Political efforts to bump former President Trump from the ballot are nothing new, argues a new piece in The Spectator. In fact, they are decades in the making. Political science professor emeritus at the University of Chicago, Charles Lipson, argues the Colorado decision to remove Trump from the ballot is part of a century-long progressive effort to reshape the Constitution that has centralized power in Washington, delegated enormous rulemaking power to bureaucrats, and turned judges into policymakers. Lipson argues the process to nix Trump from blue state ballots started way back with President Woodrow Wilson in the early 1900s and then became truly ascendant in the 1940s with the rise of the living constitution theory. As a reminder, Trump has been placed back on the ballot in Colorado, barring a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, while Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows officially removed Trump from the ballot yesterday. Here's her yesterday justifying that decision on CNN. Again. I am so mindful, and I, I said this in my decision, uh, that it is unprecedented. No secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection and been disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Joining us now to discuss his piece and the broader implications for Trump's removal from the ballot is political science professor emeritus at the University of Chicago and spectator contributor Charles Lipson. Thank you so much for joining us, professor. We appreciate you. It's great to see you, Amber, and you, Jessica. Absolutely. So let's start with the fact that I think there's been a misconception among the right for perhaps the past five or six years, ever since Trump appointed some new conservative justices to the Supreme Court, that Democrats and the left more generally didn't really care about the courts. I mean, your piece points out quite the opposite, in fact, that for a long time they've been quite interested in using the courts to engage in this judicial activism that perhaps changes elements of the Constitution and makes it easier for them to enact progressive policy. Oh, yes. Uh, the, 
the main uh, change occurred in the 1930s. Um, up until 1937, um, uh, the Supreme Court had ruled every major program that was undertaken by Franklin Roosevelt was unconstitutional. And uh, Roosevelt famously threatened to pack the court. You may remember that during uh, the Trump presidency, uh, when uh, after he had appointed conservative justices, you heard that again. And that's because the Constitution itself says does not limit the number of justices to nine. And the traditional story is that uh, uh, Roosevelt lost that battle because he didn't add any justices to the court. In fact, he won the battle. He didn't win it because he added justices. He didn't, but because he flipped one justice's viewpoint uh, uh, under coercive threat, in effect, and all the others began to retire, and he replaced them. And I'll give you one example of how that worked. Um, the um, um, There are a lot of rules that uh, the Roosevelt administration uh, put in that were based on the idea, uh, well, they just said, well, we're going to regulate this, we're going to regulate that. And then um, when those were challenged in court, they said, well, we have that right under the Interstate Commerce Clause, which is in the Constitution. And uh, a farmer said, look, what you're trying to regulate in my case is grain I'm growing on my farm and feeding to my own animals. I'm not doing anything in interstate commerce. And the courts, uh, after Roosevelt had changed them, uh, ruled that because he didn't buy the grain on international on interstate markets and because he didn't sell the grain on interstate markets, uh, he was affecting those markets. And therefore, it was interstate commerce. Well, if that's interstate commerce, almost everything is. And what you saw until fairly recently was that that kind of jurisprudence essentially allowed the uh, the federal government to regulate as much as they want and to expand these large bureaucracies in Washington, D.C. And what you're seeing now is a fight over exactly that. So I'm curious if uh, this intense focus on policymaking through, you know, court cases that pass through the judicial system, then making judges policymakers, as you said, is this partially the result of uh, gridlock, in other words, inaction by Congress, their inability or refusal in many occasions to pass legislation to make good policy? How much do you credit the current situation where we have so much focuses on so much focus on the judicial system to this this failure of Congress to deliver for the American people? Oh, I think you're exactly right, Jessica, that there's a lot of it uh, that's attributable to that. But I would say a couple of things. One, uh, not passing legislation is sometimes the best solution. It's not always that passing things is a good idea. Sometimes the best idea is to not do something. But uh, what, what a lot of our legislation does now, and I, I think that if you're not you know, deep in the um, midst of it as, as uh, you and Amber are and see the legislation. People don't know that a lot of legislation says, uh, sets very broad parameters. It says basically we want to stop a lot of 
pollution. And, um, and then it, it says the secretary of whatever it is, energy, health and human services, whatever, shall make this uh, rules and regulations that implement this broad thing. So you have delegation from the Congress to the bureaucracy. And what, um, and that's a problem because Congress is not supposed to delegate its rulemaking authority. And we all recognize that on small issues, that's not a problem. But when the issue becomes very large and consequential, we want elected lawmakers to, to make the laws. And if they don't make laws, that may or may not be a good thing. I mean, the law itself may, that, that the legislature, Democrat or Republican, want to pass may be a bad law. I'm seeing the analogy here, Charles, between how this centralized bureaucracy, this growing bureaucracy, takes power away from voters because Congress is delegating its authority, and what's happening with this ballot fight with Trump, wherein a select few judges on these state Supreme Courts, and in some cases unilaterally the secretaries of state, are removing Trump from the ballot and taking him as a choice away from voters, even as he hasn't been charged or convicted with what they're accusing him of, which is insurrection. Can you speak to um, th this, this ballot fight specifically and how this is perhaps the, the tail end of this progressive takeover of the courts? Yes, I, I think that that's a, a key question. And I think it has both a legal and a political dimension. I actually think the political dimension is the most important. Trump got over 70 million votes in the last election. He's the leading Republican candidate right now. His supporters see uh, a systematic effort by the entrenched elites and Washington bureaucrats to kick him out of office. They impeached him as many times as they could. They've uh, gone after him for things he did during his presidency, not one or two years afterwards, but waiting until the next election cycle to bring these cases, which not only uh, pose a threat uh, to him if he uh, were to be convicted, and uh, but also tie him down in court when he, he wants to be out campaigning. But I think that if you take uh, the issue shouldn't be framed as what are Trump's rights, although that's the legal case. The political case is what are the voters' rights? What rights do voters have to pick someone? And if you're gonna rule somebody out, I'm not saying you can, if the person was 34 years old, he or she doesn't uh, qualify to run for president, that's outside the constitution. But if you're gonna say that uh, a major party's leading candidate cannot run, you have to make sure that that person has all uh, the due process rights to fight it, that the Constitution is extremely clear on why uh, he or she can't run, and ideally that there is a string of precedents. And in all these cases, uh, there is a problem there's just a huge problem. And, and the idea that one person 
in the state of Maine can say, well, I've looked at it and I think there was some insurrection here and I'm going to rule him off the ballot. That's a problem. Charles Lipson, thank you so much for joining us today on Rising and helping us break this down. I really appreciate it, both Amber and Jessica. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Will do. We'll be back with more Rising. Horrifying details out of Israel as new reporting from the New York Times appears to confirm some of the most vile and reprehensible atrocities committed by Hamas against Israeli civilians on October 7th. Specifically, the Times seemed to confirm the reports of mass rape and sexual violence. A warning, some of the reporting is very graphic. The Times concluded their two-month-long investigation with evidence based on interviews with 150 witnesses, medical personnel, soldiers, and rape counselors alongside video footage, photographs, and GPS data. The Times alleges it viewed photographs of a woman's corpse with dozens of nails driven into her thighs and groin. Another video featured two dead Israeli soldiers at a base near Gaza who appeared to have been shot directly in their vaginas. One survivor described how she saw another woman get, quote, shredded into pieces while one terrorist raped her, she said. Another pulled out a box cutter and sliced off her breast. The Times also featured a bit of the other side of the story with a report detailing how Israel dropped its most destructive weaponry in areas it had previously marked safe for Palestinian civilians at least 200 separate occasions. Here's some of that reporting. This is an area in Gaza where for weeks civilians fled to find safety. These are 2,000 pound bombs one of the most destructive munitions in Western military arsenals. When a 2,000-pound bomb detonates, it unleashes a blast wave and metal fragments thousands of feet in every direction. Sometimes, 2,000-pound bombs leave giant craters in the earth, like this strike in South Gaza in November. The war in the region also continues to impact global shipping and commerce as Muslim Houthi rebels continue to attack international ships in the Red Sea. The U.S. has sent ships into the region to deal with the attacks. Reports indicate that the USS Mason intercepted a Houthi-launched drone, an anti-ship ballistic missile, in the Southern Red Sea yesterday in what marked the 22nd attack by rebels on shipping in more than two months. So what's going on here? It, it's extremely sad to hear the level of, of destruction and the details of these reports. When I think about what the rebels are doing, I mean, Israel has the support of the U.S. military. You know, Palestine does not. And so Yemen seems to be one of the only countries that is actually supporting Palestine on this side of the war. I think it's extremely strategic to attack the international shipping. We had protests here in the, the United States on the West and East Coast where there were shipments of weapons leaving the U.S. to go to Israel. And there were protesters trying to block those weapons. I can see anyone interested in peace wanting to prevent weapons uh, from getting in the hands of the people who are using them the most. Now, the New York Times reporting to me feels uh, a little dishonest because the New York Times for the past, I don't know, 50 years has not done a very good job detailing the, the sexual crimes 
of Israeli soldiers in occupied territory against Palestinians. The figures are one in 10 women in Gaza have experienced some kind of abuse from Israeli soldiers. And it's even higher in, in younger age women, where it's as high as 23% have experienced sexual abuse from Israeli soldiers in the occupied territory. You also had at the beginning of the war, 4,500 Palestinians captured by Israelis. And now, just since the beginning of the war in the occupied West Bank, where Hamas doesn't even operate, they have captured and arrested the exact same number, just over 4,500 Palestinians. And so, you know, we don't really know what's happening in many cases to the Palestinians that are currently captured, but there's very well-documented accounts of sexual abuse and violence by Israelis on Palestinians. And it, it feels like intentional propaganda when I read the New York Times and there's such detailed coverage of what are terrible things done to women in the region. But when the assailant is the Israeli military, it doesn't afford the same coverage. And I really feel like that's sowing uh, a lot of discontent in the American people for Palestinians and for Hamas when we have so many years prior to October 7th where it hasn't been covered. And so it makes it very easy to make the case that what Israel is doing is in response to this gruesome attack in, on October 7th when that's not when the violence began. And so I feel like it's important that that's said, but what's going on is, is horrible and bombing safe zones is also disgusting and horrible. 200 occasions, it's, it's unimaginable. Yeah, I would say in a rare instance, I'll actually praise The New York Times for its journalism on both of these stories. Clearly, they have actually done the investigative legwork to try to show what's happening on both sides of this conflict, when very early on, there were a lot of erroneous reports coming out from both sides. And I think that this piece about the sexual violence is not intended to be propaganda by any means, but it's intended to respond to a very specific discourse that's been happening in American media, where there have been denials from very high-profile journalists and members of the media that there was any systemic or systematic sexual violence done by Hamas on October 7th. So in response to that, The New York Times did what a responsible news outlet should do, which is they talked to the witnesses, they reviewed the medical records, they talked to the first responders on that day and got, gathered as much material as they possibly could to try to tamp down the denial of what really happened Oct on October 7th. So I don't, I don't view this as propaganda from the IDF, but as The New York Times doing its duty to try to inform the public of what actually happened as there have been these conspiracy theories that all of the claims of rape and sexual assault were just done in order to justify what Israel was doing when it was actually the reality of what those people faced. Right. Yeah. The New York Times reported that they interviewed many people. They had firsthand accounts of witnesses. Uh, of course, rape kits were not done. Many of the, the people who are allegedly raped were already buried. It is the case that uh, at least for Pal many Palestinian women who are Muslim, there's a bit of resistance to even re report rapes. There's all sorts of reasons many women cite that they don't want uh to upset their husbands, they've already gone through the trauma. They don't want any, you know, additional prodding and poking to bring back memories that are just terrible. Uh, and to give firsthand testimony, I can't even uh, imagine what that would be like, especially in a time of war when you've you've probably lost friends and family. And so the New York Times in this reporting, as you know, we said here, relied on a lot of GPS data, firsthand witnesses. Uh, it was not just. 
reports from the Israeli military, but I I think the New York Times will continue to get more concrete evidence than just the firsthand accounts that that they said they got. And I think it's the reasonable thing to do. You know, initially in the first days of war after October 7th, it's a situation that's in flux. It's very hard, if not impossible, uh, to confirm that everything you get reports of is actually based in fact and based in truth. But now that we're so many days into the war, you know, we should be expecting more reporting like this that either affirms or corrects the narratives initially pushed. You know, in the case of the Al-Shifa hospital, I would like to see the New York Times, you know, revisit their reporting on the Al-Shifa hospital, given the context we have now from the independent investigations from BBC and the Washington Post. I think the, the media in the United States has a huge opportunity to rebuild trust with the American people and how they continue to report on the the Israel-Palestine war as it continues. I think just as someone who's read so many reports initially that were wrong, I lost a lot of faith in the days following October 7th. And reporting like this, I think, helps people restore their faith. The independent investigation from the Washington Post But we also have stories like the 40 beheaded baby story that was initially pushed by Biden himself. Similarly, he said that they had intelligence and that it was absolutely certain that there was a command center in the Al-Shifa hospital. So it's the media and it's the administration that pushed false narratives initially that were never confirmed. And correcting the record is extremely important, especially when you talk about 40 beheaded babies on October 7th, but you don't have widespread reporting on the fact that the Al-Shifa hospital was not a command center, but 43 babies died in the NICU when Israel Israeli forces decided to, to attack and raid that hospital. They shut off power and water and supplies to these hospitals, resulting in the deaths of many. And so sometimes the reporting is dangerous, and it gives this kind of consent for the United States to continue sending weapons when we have this belief that oh my God, 40 babies were beheaded. We have this belief that this hospital has been turned into a terrorist command center. Of course, Israeli forces should raid it. And now the civilians living in Gaza have lost their most important hospital. It is the largest and highest functioning hospital. And I think, you know, maybe all they need is that window of time of permission when the story is initially reported and the damage is already done by the time the record's corrected. So they they have an opportunity to rebuild trust by not just correcting the record, but also taking accountability for that. Yeah, I actually, the reporter who um, was responsible, I think, for first spreading the 40 beheaded babies story um, misspoke. And what she meant to say was that it was 40 babies were killed, some of whom were beheaded. And that story just spread like wildfire because of the sensational aspect of it. Um, that being said, there are so many other uh, videos and audio evidence of what happened on October 7th that um, that alone seems like a, a sort of a minor quibble among the destruction that was wrought on that day. But um, I agree with you. I, I, th- I think the media needs to be careful when they're reporting in wartime. It seems quite frequently that these stories get out of hand and spread before they can be reasonably corrected. Um, these things don't tend to be uh, spread as the corrections don't seem to be spread as widely as the initial story. We saw this in the Ukraine-Russia conflict as well, where there was this whole narrative about the ghost of Kiev, who was somehow shooting down like hundreds of Russian fighter pilots or, or something or other, and it turned out not to be true. Um, there was a story about, I think, a Ukrainian squadron that um, refused to surrender on some island and. 
Um, that turned out not to be true. And, and so wartime reporting is, is very fraught with inaccuracy. And so I, I agree that I'm looking forward to seeing some, some better investigative reporting going forward and hopefully try to suss out the real damage of this conflict. Well, we're going to take a break and be back with more Rising after this. Punished for free speech, Brown University has decided to charge 41 students with trespassing, reportedly after they were arrested last week during a pro-Palestine protest for refusing to leave an administrative building after hours. Brown's decision to charge the students follows 20 students protesting Israel's invasion of Gaza, who were arrested also and charged with trespassing in November. Brown eventually dropped those charges after a Palestinian student at Brown, Hisham Awartini, along with two other Palestinian students, were shot in Burlington, Vermont. Brown has seen several pro-Palestinian protests in recent weeks. Here's footage of protesters disrupting a vigil for the three Palestinian students who were shot. Sadly, we can't control what happens around the world and across the country. We're powerless to do everything we'd like to do. But there's so much that we are doing and continue to do. Joining us now to discuss this story, as well as the wave of protests across the nation, are Isabella Garo and Carla Humphreys, two organizers with Brown Divest, who participated in the protest, which led to trespassing charges. Welcome to both of you. So I want to start with just tell us what happened that day, the day where 41 students are now having charges pressed against them. I'm also intensely curious as to why Christina Paxson decided to show up to the vigil at all. Um, but let's start with you, Bella. Why don't you tell us why you all decided to, to demonstrate that day and gather and what happened? I think there are, the answer is twofold and that we each have our own individual motivations for being there, as well as our collective motivations and goals for the sit-in. Collectively, we felt that we could not stand by as our university knowingly and willingly invested in companies that were facilitating the genocide in Gaza. And we all felt that it was a moral imperative and our personal responsibility to compel our university and use our position as Brown University students to ask them and, and demand that they divest from these companies. And then on a personal level, you know, just being Latina and, you know, coming from a community and from a people who've experienced so much oppression, I felt that it was my personal responsibility to stand up against oppression when I see it, even if it's against a community that isn't necessarily my own. And let's and, bring you in, Carla. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your perspective of what happened that day and why, why you all decided to show up? So I personally was not, in fact, one of the students who sat in and was arrested, but I helped organize and was outside the building on the day of the sit-in. Um, so a little bit of what happened that day is, so there was a rally held um, in sort of for justice for our classmate Hisham, who was shot 
um, in late November. And during that time, it surfaced that 41 students um, were sitting inside University Hall um, with the intention of um, demanding that Christina Paxson forward the ACRIP report, um, which was this report compiled in 2020, um, recommending that Brown divest its endowment from a set of specific companies facilitating the genocide in Gaza. Um, the students um, said that they would stay inside the building until their demand was met. Um, their, Christina Paxson delivered, spoke with them in the, in the morning and later delivered them a letter um, essentially refusing their demand. And then at five o'clock, um, the police showed up. I mean, Bella can speak to this more than I can. Um, but from an outside the building perspective, um, hundreds of students gathered outside and over the next sort of three or four hours, we were outside singing and um, chanting in support of the students who were um, arrested inside the building, processed in there, uh, and then released one by one um, over a long span of time in which the outside, us on the outside were very sort of confused and bewildered as to why this was happening, why it was happening in such a way, um, and outraged, of course, that our 41 of our classmates were being arrested for peaceful protest at a school where with a rich history of student protest that is in fact celebrated officially by the university. So it looks sure like, yeah, so Bella, a follow-up question for you. It, it looks like Brown does have a policy that you're not supposed to be in some of these buildings after hours. The university claims that they gave you multiple warnings to leave the building prior to the arrest. So. I am having a hard time squaring, I mean, it, obviously the protesters outside the building weren't arrested and the ones inside were, so this was a trespassing issue, not a, not a speech issue from what I'm looking at. Is it true that the university warned you that they would arrest you if you didn't leave? Yes, there were members of the administration that spoke to us and notified us that if we remained in the building past closing time, which was 5 p.m., that we may be subject to arrest. We responded by telling them that we did not intend to leave the building until Christina Paxson agreed to bring the 2020 ACRIP report to the next corporation meeting in February and advocate for its um, voting and passage in the corporation. Um, and they responded by choosing to arrest us instead. So I'm curious, both of you, your perspective on how the issue of Israel-Palestine has perhaps been handled differently by Brown University compared to other issues. I've been at the university when peaceful protests have been had before, even those you know that violate official code of conduct of Brown University. It's a deliberate decision that they want to call in Providence police and have students arrested. Can you just speak to how maybe, if at all, they're handling the issue of Israel-Palestine different than other issues where students have protested? Let's start with you, Carla. Um, so in terms of the actual protest, um, I think that reactions to protests have varied over time. But one thing that I think is very clearly an exception is Brown's choice to not even consider divesting and to say that divestment and are present to regularly invalidate the efficacy and um, need for divestment and the role of divestment in the university's ethics when Brown University has previously divested five separate times, um, what, beginning with South African apartheid, um, including the Darfur genocide in South Sudan, 
um, and most recently in 2020 from fossil fuels. Um, each of these times it has recognized that its investments have, um, divesting has had um, or impact on the social harm done by these things and the fact that Brown University has divested from genocides um, throughout the world previously and is choosing not to here feels like a very pointed exception and not only is not choosing not to divest but is not even voting on it in the first place. What else are um, you all prepared to do in the future if Brown continues to not divest? Will you be prepared to do another sit-in, face arrest again? What are some of the ways that you intend to try to um, hold them to your demands? Well, in terms of specific actions, I can't speak to that. We don't know. But one thing I can say is that as each sit-in has occurred, more and more students across the university have become engaged with the issue, um, partly because of the arrests. Highlighting um, the issue of Brown's investment, something that the majority of the student body were not necessarily as aware of as they now have become. Um, and so the amount of people um, engaged in the movement has dramatically increased over the past months. Um, and there is an escalation in support and action against the university. And I'm sure that that will um, come, that will become increasingly obvious and um, in protests going forward. Would you both be prepared to perhaps transfer to another school and take away your tuition dollars as a means of protest? I will say we have one semester left. We're both seniors and most of us, our tuition has already been paid for the next semester. Um, so personally, I don't even think it is like a plausible or a possible option for us to even transfer. But at the end of the day, this is not a problem that is specific to Brown University. There are many universities across the country that are invested in the genocide we are seeing in Gaza. And we still see that it is our moral imperative to compel Brown to divest. Us leaving Brown University's individuals would not necessarily compel them to change their ways. We do feel it is our protests and us bringing this issue to the university's attention is the most feasible. Uh, way of achieving divestment. And so I think that's that's where our efforts will lie moving forward. Okay, Bella and Carla. More in thank you. Oh, I was thank just gonna say we're we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us on Rising. Of course. Thank you for having us. Thank you. of three of the country's biggest cities now say their areas are almost at capacity for handling the surge of migrants currently pouring over the U.S.-Mexico border. The mayors of New York City, Denver, and Chicago have all pleaded with federal authorities for assistance as the border sees a record number of crossings. Just yesterday, Mexico and the Biden administration formally agreed to work together to keep the border open for asylum seekers while curbing illegal migration. New York City Mayor Eric Adams shared this video to address constituents on the matter just yesterday. Let's watch. We're seeing uh, the erosion of the quality of life that we've improved on in such a short period of time of this administration. And we have been impacted. Uh, for, for many uh, months, 
We were able to keep the visualization of this crisis from hitting our streets, but we have reached a breaking point. We're no longer able to do that because of the volume and numbers. Just last week, we had 3,900 people that arrived here. We are averaging anywhere from 2,500 to close to 4,000 a week. And if you do the math, you see that's 8,000 every two weeks, potentially 16,000 a month that we must feed, clothe, house, educate children, and all the services that you would give a normal adult. And we're seeing that play out on our streets of New York. And that is what the breaking point looks like, what we are experiencing right now. The Biden administration, meanwhile, warned Texas that it will sue the state if it implements a strict immigration law that would empower state and local law enforcement to arrest, jail, and prosecute migrants suspected of crossing illegally. So Mayor Eric Adams just had this executive order passed to essentially tell the state of Texas, you have to give us 32 hours notice and you can't have buses of migrants coming into the state, you know, any hours outside of 8 a.m. and 12 noon so that, you know, they can process them. Seems like a reasonable executive order, seems like good cooperation between states. But all in all, this isn't an issue that can be resolved by the governor of any particular state, by any mayors, by law enforcement. This is something that needs to be resolved by Congress, because I see migration wholly as an economic consideration. There needs to be the proper you know, policies in place and systems in place to process people coming into the United States legally who want to work here. And there, there really isn't one. When I see the influx of migrants in, into New York City and New York officials saying, you know, we have to pay for 19,300 plane tickets for migrants seeking to go across the country, are we sure that there is a job for them there? Are we sure that there is a pathway for them to leave a sustainable life? Or are they going to be sucked into what I think many conservatives fear and which is a legitimate fear uh, the informal economy and seeking to meet their most basic needs through committing crimes and doing all kinds of works, uh, work on the streets of the United States. We can have full employment in the United States. This is a failure of Federal Reserve policy. It's a failure of the administration and of Congress. We have things that need to get done. We have a shortage of childcare. We have a shortage of elder care. We have shortages in the healthcare industry. We have a need to rebuild our infrastructure. There is work for many people to do in the United States, and there are unnecessary restrictions, not freeing capital to go towards those things. All the while, the banks, which are responsible for allocating you know, new dollars to be spent into the economy, to invest into businesses, whether existing or people are starting new ones, instead of using capital in that way, in a way that grows the economy in the same way putting immigrant labor to work would, instead what those banks are doing is taking advantage of the bank term funding program. They're borrowing money from the Federal Reserve at a 4.88% interest rate, and then depositing that money into accounts at the Federal Reserve at a 5.4% interest rate. The Federal Reserve is currently paying banks to take money to the tune of $255 billion in the two weeks we just had in December. That's absurd. Banks in the United States should be investing in businesses. They should be loaning that money out so that our economy grows. And right now, every single person that's struggling with inflation is a victim of banks irresponsibly using uh, their power. They've been tasked with money creation. They've been doing a bad job. Everyone hurts from that. All of the workers that are struggling to make ends meet uh, are, are struggling because of that. And the migrants seeking to labor in the United States and start a life. And now, you know, 
governors and mayors are overwhelmed with the amount of migrants they don't have jobs for. Yeah, I think border security should be the first consideration because at that point, it would be a lot easier, first of all, to process the people who are coming to the United States who right now are not being properly screened and somehow are being put on airplanes and other forms of transportation to move about the country on the expense of taxpayers, um, despite the fact that we seemingly don't have much idea of who these people are. There have been multiple instances in the dozens of people on terror watch lists actually making their way across the southern border. And we have people not just coming from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, but people who actually fly into Central and South America, as well as the northern border that we share with Canada, in order to cross there because they believe it would be easier than trying to enter the country through legal means or through some other some other method. Um, so border security to me is number one. There are obviously legal pathways already for people to be able to work in the United States, whether seasonally or on some kind of other visa program. Um, some of my coworkers do it from London. I work for The Spectator. We are uh, fundamentally a British company, and, and they all get work permits to come work here. Um, but trying to give people after the fact work permits um, after they've immigrated illegally only serves to further incentivize that behavior, as opposed to encouraging people to go through the legal process. I think there's an argument to be made, perhaps, that the legal process can be challenging sometimes and take too long. That's legitimate criticism. That is something that obviously would have to go through Congress as well. Um, but I, I think there's always been this attempt at deal-making between Republicans and Democrats, where Democrats say, well, we'll give you border security, but first you have to give everyone who's here amnesty and you have to reform the immigration system. And they've been hoodwinked because the Democrats don't want to do border security. So the, the idea that they wouldn't secure the border first, I think it's frankly ridiculous. And if you start giving uh, work permits to tens of thousands of migrants, uh, really we've had millions come in over the past few years, what you're doing for the American worker is you're artificially deflating wages because these individuals tend to be more economically desperate, so they are willing to work for lower wages and for poorer working conditions, even if they are a part of the legal economy. So we also have to consider the ramifications of importing that many laborers into our economy would have on the American working and middle class. Yeah, I think, you know, keeping the federal minimum wage high is a, a good stopgap for that. Having the Federal Reserve, you know, consistently have a population of people unemployed is really the policy that's kept wages low for so long, since the 70s, when we saw wages begin to stagnate. That's also when they adopted the non-accelerationary uh, inflationary rate of unemployment. So they decided that at this magical figure that they don't have any real uh, math or economics to back up, no data that shows this figure is absolutely what it should be. Jerome Powell has admitted this on the floor of the House. Uh, but they decide, you know, not more than 4.5% uh, should be, you know, in, uh, unemployed. If more than this is unemployed, you know, it's unnecessary. But if we have, uh, you know, unemployment numbers too low, we're going to see inflation skyrocket which is ridiculous. That's absolutely not how it works. If more people are working, they're producing more. There's more things for people to buy who are then earning money in their jobs and then going on to purchase things. This concern that if more people are working, demand will be uncontrollable is, is ridiculous. And we haven't really seen this figure stand the test of time. We've seen Jerome Powell say, you know what, we've actually gotten this figure wrong, which means that there's a population of people unnecessarily unemployed, people desperate for work, who are willing to, like you said, like 
like many migrants, take jobs at incredibly low wages. It is true that many migrants are willing to work for less, but we also have this case of workers intentionally made desperate by American policy that is keeping wages low. And since the 1970s, we've seen inflation-adjusted wages be stagnant while profits are incredibly high. They can afford to pay workers more, but they're choosing not to, and they don't have to thanks to this policy. So there's all kinds of reasons why wages are low, but I think I want to go back to the fear around border security. So many Democrats don't want to talk about border security, and there's an idea that all border security means is militarizing the border when really that's what they're going to do in Texas. That's what the governor's going to do in Texas. That's what they're trying to do with this law. The alternative to having the folks in Texas do that is to actually invest public dollars, they control the budget, into having processing centers for migrants coming to the United States. That would make the process much faster. That would prevent border security or uh, border patrol from putting people into facilities where they wait for a long period of time. But Democrats don't want to acknowledge that, that the solution is actually to invest more in the border because they have this unconceived notion that for some reason that means increased militarization. No, we need the legal process to be one that can be done quickly, which means we need more buildings created there and we need more personnel allocated to the border. And there's no really good reason why Democrats aren't writing legislation to do that. Uh, I think they would be reticent to do that because if you process people more quickly, you also lead to more rapid deportation or removals, expedited removal, because a lot of these people who are coming are not eligible for the asylum that they're claiming. So if you speed up the court processes, you end up basically just having to send these people back. And I think what the Democrats want is for them to come in without processing so that they can already be in the country and not have to worry about a court date, but we probably have to agree to disagree on that one. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has vetoed a bill that would have banned transgender student athletes from competing in female sports, as well as prevented doctors from prescribing hormones, puberty blockers, or gender reassignment surgery before patients turn 18. DeWine claimed the law would have put government in charge of health care decisions instead of their parents. Here's DeWine. Were I to sign House Bill 68, or were House Bill 68 to become law, Ohio would be saying that the state, that the government, knows better what is medically best for a child than the two people who love that child the most, the parents. Gender critical commentators were quick to express their outrage. Former female athlete Riley Gaines posted on X, Governor Mike DeWine has vetoed HB 68, a bill that would protect women's sports and prevent child mutilation. Fortunately, Ohio has the votes to override the veto. Governor Mike DeWine is a spineless coward that needs to be removed from office. Detransitioner Chloe Cole posted Governor DeWine's political career is over. What a way to go out, paid off by the medical lobby, which is insanely powerful in Ohio. Remember him for his desire to sterilize and mutilate children. So, Jessica, what do you think of Governor DeWine, a Republican, making the decision to veto this bill? I think it, it makes sense. I think the restriction in the case of transgender athletes participating in sports should just be that they must undergo at least two years of hormone 
therapy before participating if it is, you know, a, a woman to man transition or sorry, a man to a woman transition and they want to participate in women's sports. We see that that their advantage when it comes to running is completely diminished after two years and then performance of different measures like sit-ups is diminished after three years. So if you want to, you know, make the metric for running track and field two years make sense. If you want to do all other sports, you know, at three years, I think that makes sense. I think there's a, a way to deal with this without a complete ban. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, a Republican vetoed this. I can see the next steps being what should the restriction be? Is this something decided by the boards of education? Is it something decided by the state legislator? But it makes sense to not just have an all out ban. Yeah, I guess my problem with that is that there are also studies that have been published by the NIH that say that there are other aspects to transgender athletes that allow them to retain an advantage, whether on strength or speed, because even if they are taking testosterone suppressant medication, they still have developed more muscle mass, they have longer wingspans, larger feet, larger hands, all of the things that might come along with going through puberty as a male that do in fact allow them to uh, have a biological advantage over a woman in sports. I mean, it, it, and it, even just looking at prior to transition, the record holders in the Olympics, for example, if you compare a man and a woman in the same sport, the man's time is always faster or his throw is always further. Um, so I, I, to me, having just a restriction on it is not enough to get rid of that competitive advantage just based on the research that we have available based on uh, post-transition individuals. Yeah, I mean, to have the, the, the performance for running diminished after two years and then you know, after three years, the other strength testing, they do the, the push-up performance test. I, I really think that that's, you know, something completely different from if someone were to go through hormone therapy before puberty. There are cases where they, they take puberty blockers, and then when it comes time that they're ready to transition, they can go through hormone therapy before puberty. So they never go through, through puberty as a man. And so there's a, a lot of developing medical research, and it, it sounds like there are conflicting cases. And I don't know how much I would trust, you know, the researcher setting. I haven't read it, you know, based on statistical significance, considering the number of transgender people in the United States is so incredibly low, under 2%. And so we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, examples, cases, uh, people to study and doing randomized control trials on this sort of thing is, is near impossible because it's really a personal decision as to whether or not someone decides to transition. And, you know, the pool of people uh, that decides to become an athlete and, and likes athletics well enough to go through the process of doing this kind of clinical trial, taking the hormone therapy while still being an athlete, you know, it's a lot of pressure. I can imagine perhaps the sampling bias of the people willing to participate in the study being some of the best and most passionate athletes, and that could bias the results as well. There's all sorts of things. So I think we, we've got to wait some more time before the research is fully reliable. But it seems to me that, you know, they could make the restriction if, as you said, they start taking the hormone therapy before puberty. Um so that they never do go through puberty as a man. I just don't think an all-out ban makes sense right now uh, when so much is changing. It seems to me that this needs to be you know, a decision uh, that is made and then changed policy-wise. 
Yeah, I'd like to see more research as well, but I think I would err on the opposite side of exercising caution in terms of the fairness and safety of women in sports and have the all-out ban until there is research that would prove that being on these hormones for a certain period of time would diminish all of the athletic advantage. Um, the study that I'm referring to is one where they looked at transitioners that are actually in the United States Air Force, and they only went a year after, not two years, so I, I'm not sure about uh, what you're citing. but. The one-year advantage for uh, run times was still 9% of the men who had transitioned to women. But I wanted to get into this question about child transitions as well, because this is obviously completely intertwined with the question of women's sports when we're looking at an elementary and middle school level. Um, I guess my objection to the idea of getting people on puberty blockers before they go through puberty and then continuing them through on hormone therapy and perhaps surgical changes later on is that a vast majority of children who suffer from gender dysphoria end up growing out of those feelings by the time they reach adulthood. And so the fear and the concern is that you're putting a kid through a permanent body-altering change. Um, puberty blockers, if you're on them for long enough, are, are not reversible and lead to the failure of development of secondary sex characteristics. So you're putting them through a permanent body altering change without one, I think the proper ability to consent, a lot of children don't really know who they are or who they wanna be when they're at the ages that they're being put on these blockers and two, end up growing out of it and then can't go back, they can't get back time. That's the objection of people like Chloe Cole, for example, who um, went through these treatments when they were children and then ended up becoming known as detransitioners because of their, uh, their, their changing mind on, on whether or not they actually wanted to be a member of the opposite sex. So I just would be curious to hear your response on some of the data surrounding these gender-affirming treatments for children. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's true. There are many people who transition, detransition. I know someone who, who detransitioned. I, I think that's why it should be a decision made between, you know, the child, their parent, and their doctor. It's it's to me a parenting decision because if you have a, a child, let's say you know you have a child who is a male, they would like to transition to become a female. If they go through puberty as a male, that also is something that will permanently change their anatomy, permanently change their body, permanently but change it, but their But that's the natural. Function. But that's the the natural function of the human body. I think there's a, a difference between allowing them to have their body go through its natural process of aging and growing versus artificially suppressing that natural process. I think the latter requires uh, a much higher standard for proving that it could be beneficial, right? I don't have any problem with, you know, anyone seeking medical help, taking medications, making changes, you know, to their bodies with plastic surgery, if that's what they want to do, you know, that's their decision. Uh, just because it's not what the course of nature would do doesn't mean it's, you know, unethical in my eyes. You know, that's why we have so much medical technology to improve human life, to make us live longer, healthier and happier. And so if I was a parent of a transgender child, it would have to be a, a conversation. You know, are you certain this is what you want? Because if, if we don't act before puberty, then their body would be permanently changed in a sex they don't identify with through the puberty process. So I think, you know, it's an impossible decision. It's a really difficult one because down the line, sure, they might change their mind. But many people make decisions that change their lives permanently, especially parents making decisions for their children's for their children that ultimately maybe the, the child wasn't happy with that and would have liked their life to go in a different direction. That's something you, you handle afterwards. I just don't think the government you know, should be able to ban any child or parent 
from, you know, taking hormones if that's what they want to do. Yeah, I guess my perspective on it would be that in terms of any decision that a parent makes on behalf of their child and whether or not it should be legal, especially with medical treatments, is that you would have to prove that the benefits of the treatment outweigh the harm. And based on the research that we have available now and the fact that in the UK they're actually drawing back on the way that they care for children with gender dysphoria because of a lack of evidence that these treatments actually reduce things like suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression, et cetera, and even uh, the ability to for these children to feel like they are in the quote-unquote right body. Um, to me, the evidence leans on the side of these being more harmful than not, and so that's why I would support a ban. Next time on Rising, Robbie and Bree will be back for the first episode of 2024. We'll see you all in the new year. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen on the go, we are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye, y'all.